The scripture for this morning's message is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 through 25. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Father, I praise your name because this week is the 30th anniversary of the day that I came to meet you. And I thank you so much that by your grace and by your mercy that you just had it so that I would be in the very city where I came to Christ 30 years ago and I would be standing with the guy that I did drugs with for the very last time in my life. And I thank you, Father, for the fact that you brought me to Christ on that day. And I thank you for the fact that you brought him to yourself Uh, just a few years ago, and I thank you for the privilege we had of going around uh, our city, Lord, and sharing Christ with this person and that. I thank you, Father, for the man I talked to in particular who was close to coming to you. Sam is his name, and I pray that he would cross that line. I pray that even this very day in a worship service out in the West Coast that he would come to saving faith in Christ. I thank you, Father, that you gave me the opportunity to look him in the eye and say, Sam, God has done a great work in me, but he still has parts of my heart to conquer, so you don't have to be perfect in order to come to Christ, so just come my friend, just come. And I thank you, Father, that you have a heart, even after 30 years, to keep conquering this heart of mine. And I thank you, Father, that you have a heart to conquer all of our hearts. Lord, the truth is that many of us have been walking with you for a long time, some of us for a shorter time, but the, but the truth of the matter is that our hearts still remain unconquered in part. And I pray that today, by your word and by your spirit, that you would conquer us just a little bit more. I pray that you would take just a little bit more territory. I pray that just a little bit more today we would take up our cross and die to the things of the world. And I pray that we would lift up our eyes and be satisfied with the glory of Jesus alone. I pray, Father, that by your spirit and for the glory of your great name that you would come and do a great work through your word. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do. Lord, we've been in First and Second Samuel for 13 months now, and I pray with all my heart that you would put a, a crown of grace upon these months. And I thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Not long after Saul rose up in Israel and began to play a leadership role, Samuel led the people uh, to go to the historic city of Gilgal, and there he led the people to renew the covenants that they had made with the Lord, because frankly, they had forgotten the Lord, and there he led the people of Israel to officially install Saul as their king. And when he had done this, Samuel rose up and he gave his final address. 
He spoke his final words to Israel. And I wanted to end our time in First and Second Samuel by returning to this chapter because this chapter is really the summary of all of First and Second Samuel. And in the middle of this chapter, I think we find the, the theme verse of the whole uh, book. First and Second Samuel, you may remember, is one book. So I'm going to refer to them as one, one book. And beyond what's happening just in First and Second Samuel, this chapter is really the bridge between the days of the judges and the days of the kings. And in fact, if you press hard enough, we really won't have the time to do this today, but if you press hard enough, you'll find roots in chapter 12 that go all the way back to Genesis and all the way forward to the book of Revelation. It's an incredibly important chapter. And again, I just feel like it'd be such a great summary to our time in First and Second Samuel, and so I wanted to return there today. Samuel begins his address by dealing with some interpersonal matters in verses one through five, and then having done that, he gets to the heart of what he really wants to say in verses six through 19. And so I wanna begin this morning by just reading everything that Samuel had to say together, and then after that, we'll just sort of process what's happening here and how it applies to us. So if you will, please look with me at verse six. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord, Yahweh, is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before Yahweh, that I may beg you, that I may entreat you, that I may do everything I can to stir up your affections before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Then your fathers cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and who made them to dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and we have served, or that word also means worshiped, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve or worship you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, who is Gideon, and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, in other words, all the judges, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, no, but a king shall reign over us. An earthly king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Saul. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve or worship him, and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. God will be gracious to you. God will forgive your iniquities. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you should just know that at wheat harvest, it doesn't rain. This was a very unusual thing to ask for. And you shall know 
and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple question, but I think a serious question, and that is, what exactly was Israel's evil here? What was at the heart of it? Why was it such a big deal for them to ask for a king? Why was there this this thunderous, powerful, piercing, almost condemning word spoken to them in light of what they had asked for? Why was it so serious that Samuel said to them, your wickedness is great? I mean, just imagine that I would stand before you today and point out something you did and then tell you that your wickedness is great. Why is this wickedness so great? And why is it that Samuel sought for and received from the Lord a very powerful and unusual sign from the heavens that confirmed that what he was saying was true? What's really at the heart of Israel's sin? And I would simply answer this. It's a simple answer, but it's a serious answer. The heart of Israel's sin against the Lord is that they had rejected the heart of the Lord. They were not living by faith, to put it in other words. They failed to trust the heart of their God and the goodness of his desires and of his designs for them. They failed to trust in the power of God to bring about his purposes in his time and in his way. They failed to trust and to see that the wisdom of God's plan was better than their own plans or the plans of the world. In the ebb and flow of daily life, to be frank about it, they got bored with God. And they turned their eyes away from God. They failed to continue believing in God. They failed to believe that God's plans were good and that they were going to come to pass. You probably know what this is like. Maybe in a moment you believe the Lord, but then one day passes and a week passes and a month passes and a year passes and you begin to wonder where is the Lord and where are his promises and you get bored and maybe slowly but surely you drift away. I I think this is what was happening in Israel. Instead of being unhappy with God and content in his purposes, they neglected the Lord, they neglected his word and then they came to long for the things of the world. Why? Because they could see the things of the world. You see, this is part of the issue with following God. He calls upon us to believe in and hope for things that we can't immediately see, right? He calls for us to cling to things that we cannot necessarily describe. We have to hope for a city that is not of this earth. I was telling Kimmy this week, and when I got back from Palm Springs, I spent time uh, about 20 years of my life on and off. I was going in and out of Palm Springs. My parents lived there. And at one time, I had an earthly city there. But now my parents are dead. And I have some friends there, but pretty much the life that I live there is gone. It, it's scattered. I, I have no earthly city really anywhere. And that's a grace to me because it forces me to cling to a city that I cannot see. We have a better hope. We have a better city. But the problem is we can't see that city. And sometimes because we can't see it and feel it and touch it and taste it now, we fall away. We fail to believe. I think this is what was happening to Israel. There may have been in them at some time a certain kind of belief in God, but they turned to the things of the world and they began to long for what they could actually see. They looked to the world 
And they wanted then to be conformed to the world. Yes, give us the veneer of Yahweh, but give us the content of the world. That's what they wanted. For this reason, the people of Israel passionately demanded a king. And they would not take no for an answer. They did not humbly ask their leaders. They demanded this from their leaders. They insisted on having an earthly figurehead, an earthly representative of God, just as did all the nations around them. They probably did have some desire for the Lord, but the blessing they wanted was really the world's blessing, and they wanted it in the world's way. They were not walking in relationship with the Lord, beloved. They were not loving him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. They were not listening to what he had to say and believing in his words and clinging to his promises and hoping in his faithfulness above all things. They had seen some great things with their eyes. And their immediate ancestors had seen even greater things. They probably had grandparents and great-grandparents who had literally seen some of the great works of God with their eyes, but those things were now past and they were living in unbelief. They were overcome with unbelief. And I choose the word unbelief because of what it says in Hebrews chapter four, verse two. In chapter four, verse two, the author of Hebrews says that the, the good news, you know the word gospel means good news, right? He's saying that the people of old in Samuel's day, the gospel was actually preached to them too. The good news came to us just as it was to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Powerful words and works of God basically did nothing for these people. Why? Why? Hebrews says, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, they didn't believe, beloved. It is not enough just to hear the words of the Lord. We must cling to the Lord and listen to his words. They did not believe his words or in his ability to bring about his words. They did not believe in his goodness and in his desire to do good to them moment by moment and over time. Rather, they looked to the world and they longed to be conformed to the image of the world. And this is why they demanded of Samuel a king. This is why. Unbelief is under it all. And and understand, unbelief is deadly serious. Unbelief is the rejection of God. Okay? We may cloak it in the veneer of biblical language, but unbelief is an out-and-out rebellious rejection of God. That's what it is. This is why their sin was so incredibly serious. Samuel could see this as plain as day. He could see not only what was happening before him, but he had the interpretation, you know? He had the eyes to see because he was one in Israel who was truly seeking the Lord. And the thing for us is this, as we hear all all of these things, the thing for us to understand is that we are really not that different from these people at all. In fact, their heart is really in us still. We too have been showered with grace. In fact, the author of John, the Apostle John, I've been thinking about Hebrews a lot, so I'm used to saying the author of Hebrews because we don't really know who he is, but we know who the author of John is. So hopefully I'll get used to just saying John. But I've been meditating on John chapter one and he said from Jesus Christ, we have received grace upon grace. And of course he means upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. We have received so much from the Lord. We have his word and to some extent we know his promises, we know his purposes. But we too tend to neglect him, don't we? We tend to look away from him due to laziness, due to busyness, due to distraction, or to put it another way, due to unbelief. 
due to a genuine love of God. And because our love for God is not what it ought to be, we become amazed by the things of the world. As I said to you a minute ago, I don't, I, what I'm saying is not absolute. I'm not here to rebuke you today because I see certain things in you. I'm speaking to my own heart as much as to anybody here right now. There are parts of my heart that remain unconquered, that remain shrouded in unbelief. There are parts of my heart that are fascinated with the world. I'm amazed with some of the things that are happening in the world. And I need those parts of my heart to be exposed, and so do you. So please, don't harden your heart to what's being said today, because I think God has a word for us that will really help us, that will really bless us. But we must face this fact, that we are amazed with the world. We have looked away, in part at least, from the Lord, and we are amazed with the world. We are distracted by the world's offerings. We are enticed by its promises. We look to the world's gadgets to fulfill us, don't we? I saw a little spoof thing. It was about a three or four minute thing this week. It said, it said basically the point of it was, Apple has come out with a new app um, that's designed to fulfill your life, to fulfill your purposes. And really all it was was the latest app. It wasn't a special app. It was the latest app. And basically what it, what it showed was this guy getting all excited at his app, and the next thing you know, he sinks into great depression until Apple comes out with the app part two. And now he's happy again, and then he's sad again, then he's happy again, and he's sad again. What's really happening? We're not really looking for a cool app. We're looking for fun, for entertainment, for fulfillment, for purpose. We're looking for a reason to be breathing on the earth. We're really looking to the world's gadgets for fulfillment. We're looking to its rewards for our purpose in life. And as we behold the world, we eventually long to be like the world. Unfortunately, we look to the world and we long to be more like it than like the Lord who saved us out of the world. And as we behold them, what we find ourselves doing, really, if we're being honest, is we're rejecting the Lord in unbelief and we're clinging to broken cisterns. That's how Jeremiah puts it, empty cisterns, empty wells of water that are really just poison. They have all kinds of promise in them, but they end up delivering the opposite of what they promise. They, 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 they deliver delusion. They deliver disappointment. They deliver depression and sometimes even a desire for death. If I was to apply all this to the corporate life of the people of God in Christ, and I look not just at our church, but I look at evangelicalism across the country, what I see that is that in large part our churches want to be a church that God does not desire. We are not content with God's desire for us. We're seeking so much to be like the world and to attract the world into the church by the means of the world. You know, the Lord's vision for the church is so incredibly simple. It's so simple, and it can be described in one word, love, love. He says, through my grace in Christ, which I will pour over your life, come and together learn to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Put him first, be satisfied in him. Second thing, love one another out of the overflow of your love for God. The order is of extreme importance. Love God first, then gain the power, the perspective, the desire, the ability to love one another, and then from that place be thrust into the world and love the lost. Love the least of these with the love of God. Love God, love one another, love the world. That's God's vision for the church. It's so simple. It is so powerful. It is so life-transforming. But if we're being honest, beloved, there's many of us that are just not content with it. It's not enough for us. It's not enough. We want more than love. We want bells and whistles. Isn't that true? So many people in our world, so many Christians, naming the name of Christ, 
Christ himself is not enough. We must have the bells and whistles. And if we don't get the bells and whistles, we'll just go to the church down the street that has the bells and whistles. This is our hearts, beloved. What's happening to us is that we, like Israel, have looked away from God. We've looked to the world. We've cloaked our desires in the language of Christianity, but the truth is we just want a Christianized version of what the world offers. When the Lord says, listen, my vision is very simple. Love me, love each other, and love a lost and dying world. We, we have a hard time believing, I think, that Jesus is able to actually build his church in his time and in his way. We have a hard time believing that his time and his way is satisfying to the soul and actually good for the world, but it is. And when you strip all these things down, beloved, when you strip it all back, when you look at, sort of press into the depth of the heart, I think what's happening to us as American evangelicals is basically what happened to Israel. We have the promises of the Lord, but we cannot necessarily see and touch and feel them. We have a greater, better city, but we can't see that city and so it's hard to keep believing. On the other hand, we've got the world with all kinds of light and all kinds of bells and all kinds of stuff getting our attention, and isn't it just so easy to look? And the more we look, the more we want to become like the world. We are Israel. And beloved, we will be helped if we'll just accept that fact, all right? For me, this is not an absolute statement. I'm not absolutely in the place that I just, talked, I just described for you, but I will freely confess to you that there are parts of my heart that love the world more than I love the Lord. And I want those parts of my heart to be exposed. I want those parts of my heart to be transformed. And so I open myself up in your presence to the words of Hebrews, chapter four, verses one and two. Now I'll add, an, add a verse here. He said, therefore, while the promise of still entering his rest stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Go after God in light of everything that has been said. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. His point is that if we too fail to unite the life-giving message of the gospel with faith, then this message will do us no good. It will do us no good. It will not work to cloak our desire for the world in the garb of Christianity. It will not work. We have to press ourselves until we want Christ and Christ alone. And the more of Christ we want, I promise you, the more of Christ we seek, we will get him. He promised us, seek and you will find. Knock, the door will be opened to you. If you ask, it will be given to you. That's a promise from Jesus Christ, and we have to turn. So this leads us to Samuel's final words, because when Samuel spoke to his people the way I'm speaking to you now, they were cut to the heart. They knew that what he was saying was true. They were cut to the heart, they were humbled, and Samuel could see it. And I think when Samuel saw their humility, even if it was a temporary humility, it was real. And when Samuel saw their humility, he spoke into it in verses 19 through 25. So please look there with me again, and let's read through them, and then I'll say a few words about it. Actually, I'm gonna read 20 through 25. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. For you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve, that is to say, worship the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 
and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel says five things to the people. In light of their response of humility, their hearts were open, they're willing to listen. They basically acquiesce to the point. They basically say, you're right, we have sinned, and our sin is very great. And see, wherever there's humility, there's also hope. And so where he saw humility, he spoke five things. Here they are. First of all, notice that Samuel affirmed the fact that they had done this evil. He had no desire to minimize or brush aside the reality of what they'd done, what they had done. He did not try to make them feel better. He simply said, you have done this evil. But notice that he plainly said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done this evil, but do not be afraid. I'm so glad that he said that, but I must be honest. I I asked the question of the Lord and of myself this week. I'm glad he said, don't be afraid, but since they had done such great evil, why should they not be afraid? Didn't they have things to be afraid of? And I think the reason Samuel said, don't be afraid, is because he saw humility in their hearts. And where there's humility, there's hope. And here's why there's hope. Exodus 34, verse 6. Such a famous text. We've talked about it so many times, but it is so important. This is the heart of our Father. He revealed his glory to Moses and then said of himself, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and I am abounding. I'm overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. The mercy of God was the hope of Samuel for the people of God. And so he said, do not fear. Yes, it is true to say that the Lord is holy. He's holy beyond anything that we can imagine. He really is. And his hatred towards sin is of a quality and of an intensity that I think will, is impossible for us to grasp. That's true. And it's also true that God, because he's holy and just and righteous, will punish sin and punish it all the way. Punish it to a depth that we also cannot imagine. God cannot let sin just go. He cannot minimize it. He cannot dismiss it. He cannot pretend that it's not there. And yes, God is merciful. He is gracious, he is compassionate, and he is attracted to humility like a moth to the flame. Yes, the Lord is an infinitely patient God who gives us every chance to turn from our wanderings and turn back toward him. And yes, when we turn, he is eager to pour upon us steadfast love and mercy. He is eager to teach us to love him more than the things of the world. He's eager to deliver us from the empty things we pursue in order to get him, who over time is not empty. You know, in the moment, he doesn't always feel immediately satisfying, but over time, he is incredibly satisfying. And so, yes, the Lord is merciful and willing to lead us in this way. Would you please keep your finger in 1 Samuel, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, because Jesus said something to us that's in so many ways identical to what Samuel was saying to those people, and I just wanted to hear us to hear these things right from the mouth of Jesus so that we can see that Samuel's words really are for us. Matthew chapter 10, I'm gonna start in verse 28. Jesus said to the people, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And who is that but God? He's saying fear God, and fear God greatly. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? You know, by the way, just, just for the fun of it, I looked that up yesterday and I found out that two sparrows are not sold, 
period. I couldn't find anywhere to, to buy a sparrow anymore. It, in fact, I found one website that says what you're gonna have to do is find a nest and take a sparrow if you want one for a pet. In other words, they're not worth much, right? They're not worth much. And check out what Jesus had to say. And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He cares about absolutely, at least as far as the economy goes, worthless birds, he does. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many, many sparrows. Thanks be to God for that. Jesus says, fear God and don't fear God. So which is it, Lord? Fear him or don't fear him? And it's both. He's saying have a a deep awe, a respect, a fear of the one who created the universe with nothing more than the words of his mouth. Fear him who is holy and who hates sin to a level that we literally cannot comprehend. But don't fear him in the way that you'd fear a father who's like about to go off at any moment and just beat the snot out of you. Don't fear him like that because he's not like that. God is good. He's kind. He's gentle. He's merciful. He's patient. He's so incredibly patient. And he's for us. He's not against us. So fear God and do not fear God. This is what Samuel said to Israel. I believe this is what the Lord would say to us. Fear and do not fear. Second thing Samuel had to say to his people then, just makes sense. He says, from then, here's what you need to do. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but instead serve the Lord with all of your heart. And as I've been saying, that word serve also means worship. So he's saying worship God above everything. Put the Lord first. Genuinely put him first in your life. Make him your treasure. Be satisfied with him. Seek his heart. Know his word. Know his will. Know his ways. Be content in who he is. Learn to be content in what he wants for you. Make a life of doing life with him. Do not fear the Lord, but love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And beloved, this is an active thing to say. This is not just about the heart. He's not just saying, oh, now turn from that and have feelings for God. Of course we have feelings for God. But he's saying in the practical ebb and flow, put God first. Make him your God. And the natural complement to this is in verse 21. Please look at 12:21. Samuel says, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. It's, such a, it's a repetitive and such a powerful thing to say Did you hear what he just said? He said, hey, check it out. Empty things are empty. Empty things are empty. You know the the problem is, though? The world does not present them as empty, does it? Our hearts do not receive empty things as empty. We receive empty things with the hope that they are not empty. But empty things are empty. So stop going after empty things. For those people, I think their empty things could be categorized into two major categories, idols and industry. Idols and industry. For them, idols were literally idols. You know, when you go to India, maybe some of you will go to India with some of us sometime, and you'll see there are idols everywhere. Little gods of clay and wood and metal, they're everywhere. People were looking to these things. They were worshiping false gods. They were hoping in things that were not things at all. They were calling upon the names of gods that do not exist. It's like taking out your cell phone and trying to call a parent that you don't have, that isn't actually there. Having a fake conversation with the father that isn't there. 
That's what that's like. They're worshiping empty things that don't even exist. And then there's industry. They were busy people. Don't make yourself think that because they lived in olden times, they weren't busy. They were busy people. They were farmers. They were, uh, you know, industrious in many other ways. They were metal workers. They were woodworkers. They were busy people. And just like us, in their busyness, sometimes they become numb to the Lord. Doesn't that feel like that for you sometimes? You go after success, you go after the achievement that the world offers you, but really what it just does is numb your heart to the things of God. You're so busy that you can't even hear his voice. For them, the empty things were idols and industry, I think. And really, it's not that different for us. It's just that on the idol side, our idols look different, don't they? Kevin and I heard the story of a guy who had come from India to the United States, and then someone asked him if he ever wanted to come back to the U.S., and he said, no, I, I, don't, I, I can't go back there. The, I, the idolatry is just too much for me. It's like he's from India. There's idols everywhere. And for him, the idolatry was too much. Why? Because he had eyes to see things that we can't see in ourselves. Our land is absolutely filled with idols. They are not little gods of clay and wood and metal. Rather, our idols are phones and iPads and laptops and televisions and other portals of in- entertainment. As John Piper has recently said, you cannot serve God and entertainment and many of us are trying to do just that. Our idols are sports figures and actors and successful people and supermodels and reality stars, and for some of us, even famous Christians. Our idols are our desires that are expressed in a thousand kind of products, in a thousand stores and malls and restaurants all over this land. As Paul once said, our God is our belly. Our God in this country are our desires, and we must have our desires, and we must have new versions of our desires day by day by day by day, or we will not be satisfied. And in addition to our idolatry, there is our industry. There there might not be a people on the face of the earth that has ever been as busy as we are. There's nothing wrong with industry in itself, but when it's busyness for the sake of busyness, what it ends up doing is crowding us out from God. It swallows up all of our time so that we have no time for the Lord who made us. Beloved, industry for the sake of industry is an empty thing and it will only give you nothing. Nothing. My best friend when I was growing up, the guy is the guy I did drugs with the very last time in my life, 30 years ago this week, and I was with him this week. His father was a very successful, very rich man, and he died an angry, empty man because he would not come to Christ. But as, as, as the world has it, he had everything. This guy had everything, and he died with nothing, because the truth is that the fruit of industry is nothing without the Lord. It's nothing. So just like Israel, we have our idols, we have our industry, we have our empty things, and I think Samuel's word applies to us. He's simply saying, listen, fear the Lord and do not fear the Lord, but here's what you need to do. Put God first, and spend a little bit of time thinking about the empty things in your life. Your empty things and my empty things, there's probably some overlap, there's probably some difference, but the word to all of us today is think about those empty things. What are you giving yourself to that will never deliver for you? They will never deliver for you. Beloved, hear the word of God. It's such a gracious word to us today. Turn from the empty things because God wants to give you everything. He wants to give you everything. It's kind of an interesting thing. The empty things promise everything right now and they deliver nothing. Sometimes when we come to the Lord, it doesn't feel like much right now, but then he ends up giving us everything. So in his grace, he's saying, turn, turn, turn to me. 
and turn from empty things. Third thing that Samuel had to say to Israel, and by extension to us, is found in verse 22. And this, in my mind, is the theme verse of all First and Second Samuel. So please look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So I, if I could summarize that, I would say this. The Lord will not forsake, but make his people for the sake of his great name. The Lord will not forsake, but he will make his people for the sake of his great name. This is what has pleased him. This is a joy to him. This is a pleasure to him. This is a delight to him. It is not drudgery. It is not obligation. His passion is to make of us a people for himself. And he is God. Don't forget, he is God. And if he has a passion, it seems to me like probably that passion is going to come about. And we're living proof, by the way, that it is coming about. After Samuel spoke those words, God was faithful to those words. God did, in fact, raise up Saul to be their king. But what, he, what the Lord told the people would happen is exactly what happened. Saul failed them. He turned out to be an empty thing. Then David rose up. And we have seen that in many ways David was a great king. Even with his flaws, we cannot pull back from that fact. To this day, Israel has never had a greater king, and yet he was a flawed man, wasn't he? He was blessed, and he was broken. He was valiant, and he was vulnerable. He was strong, and he was weak. He was a good king, but he was not the king. There's no way that God could, could fundamentally and finally make for himself a people through David. There's just too much brokenness there. But even despite his brokenness, the Lord did not give up. The Lord did not forsake his people, but, dis- but determined to make his people for the sake of his great name. And he used David to point toward the king of kings. He used David to point toward the man that we really need. Through David's weakness, we saw David's need for a savior. Jesus Christ is that savior. Through David's strengths, we saw a a, a faint vision of Christ, the worshiping, singing, conquering king. And Jesus is such a better version of that. And through David's words, beloved, through David's words, we see pictures of Christ all throughout the Psalms. I've said several times in this series, I'm not sure I'll ever in my life have have the time that it will take to do this, but I'll bet you if you really searched it out, you'd find out that David wrote more direct prophecies of Jesus than anybody else in the Old Testament. God used him to do this. God used him to say, listen people, God will not forsake, but will make his people for the sake of his great name, and he's gonna do it through the man, the Lord, Jesus Christ. So will you keep your finger here? Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter two. I wanna read... Ephesians chapter two, one to seven through with you and just rejoice in what God has done. And I wanna encourage you to hear Ephesians two, one to seven as a symbol and sign of the fact that God kept his promise in, second, in 1 Samuel twelve twenty two that he would not forsake but make his people. Here's what Paul said. And you, precious believers, you precious beloved of the Lord, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following in the course of this world. That was your life. It was your only hope. It was all nothing, but it was all that you had. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We thought we were getting everything in the world and we turned out to get the opposite of everything. 
but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, steadfast in love, and faithful to the end, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that what? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Or as Paul said in Philippians, so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus alone is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus' name is the name above every name. In other words, God did not forsake and he will not forsake but he will make his people for the glory of his great name. Beloved, that is a promise, and you can take it to the bank. The Lord has not stopped from Samuel's day to our day, and the Lord will never stop. He will never stop. He will not forsake, but make for himself a people. And I think that I mentioned this to you before some, some time ago when we were thinking about this in, the, in this part of Samuel, but I just have a, a heart to say it to you again. That if you stop and think about how God dealt with Israel, it's amazing how he gave them what, he, what they wanted, and yet he also got what he wanted. And what I mean is this. The reason the Lord was so upset with them for wanting a king is because they rejected God as their king. Isn't that right? They looked at God and said, no, thank you. We don't want you. We want somebody that we can see. The Lord really wanted to be their king. But he acquiesced to their desire, and in his discipline, he gave them what they wanted. And everything he told them was going to happen, happened. It was not good. But you know what's amazing? He used that line of kings to point the way to Jesus Christ, and Jesus actually did come about. And to this day, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he reigns over the people of God forever. We got the king we didn't want in that we got Jesus. And now God himself is our king. Amen? Amen. This country is all crazy about who we're supposed to vote for here in a week and a half. Yes? But check it out, it really doesn't matter that much. We have a king. We have a king that cannot be replaced, that cannot be corrupted, and that will not be removed. He is our stability, not any political party. Praise be to God, amen? We got the king we really needed. And so we can be salt and light in this world, but we don't have to put our hope in this world. It just amazes me, beloved, how God works. In his discipline, God gave the people what they wanted when what they wanted was not good. And yet God led the path toward ultimate salvation. He just amazes me. He really amazes me. This is the grace of our God. He will not forsake, but he will make his people for the sake of his great name. So now, look there at what Samuel said. At the end of of this, he said, now listen, far be it from me to fail to pray for you. Probably in his heart he wanted to say, in my flesh I'd rather not pray for you. My flesh, I'm upset with you. But he said, far be it that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. And Samuel did pray for the people all the way to the day of his death. He did pray for the people. But I want to tell you that we have a better intercessor. Samuel was a good man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. And I love the promise of Hebrews 7.25 and 7.26 as much as I love any promise in the Bible because it says this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save us to the uttermost. He's able to conquer every single part of our heart and soul and mind. Because 
uh, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always praying 24 hours a day around the clock and throughout the year. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Beloved, we have a better Samuel, and he's praying for us every single day. Please take time and let that sink in. Please don't pass over this too quickly. Please take time to meditate on the fact that even this moment, as you're listening to my words, there's a better word being prayed for you in the heavenly places by Jesus Christ himself. His prayer, I believe, is the guarantee that we're gonna make it. His prayer is the guarantee that the world is not gonna win in the battle for the heart, amen? Some days, the battle for my heart is very fierce. And yet I know that I will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. Not the least of which, because the Lamb of God is on the throne of God and he's praying to the heart of God for me, by name and by circumstance, and he is for you too. And our great hope is that God will do this for us, not that we will do this for God. This is our great and unshakable hope. And I think Samuel felt that. And so with that, he concluded with these words. If you'll just look at the very last verses there of 1 Samuel 12. He said to them then, as a conclusion, this is really the final words of his final sermon to them, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider, think about, meditate upon, do not forget what great things he has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So he's giving them a promise and a warning, and the Lord gives us the same. Now you don't have to keep a finger in Samuel because we won't be coming back there. Please now just turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to close by reading a similar warning in Hebrews to us and then I just want to pray. So Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read verses 19 through 27. And when I'm done reading these things, I'm just going to go straight into prayer. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Since we have confidence to go into the very place where God dwells, where the Father reigns and rules over the whole universe, where his glory is seen without any measure of distortion or distraction, we have the permission and the ability to go where God is through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through the cross. And since we have a priest, Jesus Christ, over the house of God, then let us do this. Let us draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And let's not do this alone. Let's consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you reject the ultimate sacrifice, what else can there be for you? 
But there is for you then, in that case, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Our Father, we thank you for this invitation and we thank you for your kind warning. We know, Father, that in your heart you're not trying to threaten us and get obedience out of us through manipulation. That is not your heart. Rather, you are a faithful God and you are a truth-telling God. And you're not allowed to look us in the face and tell us what are the consequences of rejecting you. So we thank you for those final words, Father. We thank you for letting us know that outside of you there is only emptiness and fearful expectations. And Father, more so, we thank you for the grace of opening up the way into your presence through Jesus Christ. We thank you for coming to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you emptied yourself and took on flesh and became a servant and and were obedient to your Father all the way to death on a cross. Thank you that you lived a righteous life for us. Thank you that you died a horrible death for us, paying the penalty for our betrayal of you. Thank you for overcoming death through the resurrection, Lord Jesus. Thank you for conquering that great and final enemy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being ascended to the right hand of your Father. Thank you for the fact that you are seated on his throne where you reign as the King of kings and our great high priest forever. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for your heart for us, so much better than Samuel, that you live to pray for us day by day, by name and by circumstance. Thank you for your power that you're willing to use so that we can overcome the world and have true joy and satisfaction in you. And thank you for this call from Hebrews to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Thank you too, Father, for giving us each other. Thank you for not calling on us to fight this fight alone. Thank you that you've given us partners in the fight. Thank you that you've given us partners in the word. Thank you that you've given us partners in prayer. Thank you that you've given us partners to let go of empty things and to grab onto you who are everything. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to love each other by mainly stoking the fires of faith in each other. Oh God, please come now and use this word from Samuel and from Matthew and from Ephesians and from Hebrews. Oh Father, use these words to shape your people into your image. Please, Father, show us that you still mean this. I will not forsake, but I will make for myself a people for the sake of my great name. Father, thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray, amen.